Back in 2020, when COVID first showed up in his part of Washington state, Dr. Dakota Lane wasn't worried. I'm Dakota Lane. My Indian name given to me by my grandparents is Mamusia. Uh, I'm a physician out at the Lummi Tribal Health Clinic, and I'm the executive medical director of this clinic. Dakota is also a member of the Lummi Nation. He had seen viruses like the H1N1 flu flare up and then fizzle out. And then all of a sudden it showed up in Seattle and... It went from this kind of joke, you know, coronavirus, haha, you know, why don't we get a corona beer type of thing, to all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, this is a pretty big deal. By March, the Lemmy Nation had its first reported case of COVID. The pandemic had reached the tribe. But even if you think about yourself and America in general, like, we were really scared. We wanted something to protect us. Soon after, Dakota's team got a call. It was the University of Washington. They were running a COVID vaccine trial. The university wanted to bring in groups like Indigenous people who aren't usually included in clinical research. When the Lummi Nation's public health director, Dr. Christina Toledo, found out, she told Dakota what she thought. I went to school with Christina. We're very good friends. And she's she's like, Dakota, you have to do this because if you don't do it, you know, the first argument people are going to say is these vaccine trials only benefit white people. Roughly 80% of the participants in the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccine trials were white. White people make up about 70% of the U.S. population. Meanwhile, indigenous people, who make up less than 1% of the U.S. population, were disproportionately affected by COVID. A CDC report found that American Indians and Alaska Natives were three and a half times more likely to get COVID than non-Hispanic whites. A lack of diversity in clinical trials can lead to less effective treatments and reduced trust. Dakota knew there was a chance that this trial could help his people. If we're looking for a solution, we need to be at the table and part of the solution. But getting the tribal leadership and the community's buy-in wouldn't be easy. The Lummi community itself has some level of trauma with, with being the ends of research, and they are just suspicious of any outside researchers. Indigenous people are often underrepresented in clinical trials. Part of the reason for that has to do with how research has been done in the past. Dakota says for a long time, many researchers did not explain their findings to the community, or the work framed Indigenous people in ways that did not represent their values. And there were often broken promises about the supposed benefits of participating in research. Some tribes have opted out of participating in any outside research, Others have banished researchers from their land. But some tribes have taken another path. In this episode, we'll learn why many tribes are wary of participating in outside scientific research. They were called the Vampire Project because Indigenous peoples felt like researchers were coming to them like vampire bats or vampires. What could be at stake if they're not included in medical research? We could actually be causing harm, medical harm, to Indigenous peoples because we don't have their their information or the inclusion of their data in, in data sets. And how some tribes are finding ways to make sure when they do participate in research, it benefits their community. When you have tribes take control of their destiny, we can do great things. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is American Diagnosis.
Dakota decided at a young age that he wanted to dedicate himself to helping his tribe. I just didn't know how to do it. So I actually started off, I went to uh, electrical engineering school and I did that for a while, working for like AT&T and IBM. But I discovered quickly I was stuck in a cube and it wasn't really getting me to where I wanted to be able to serve Lummi. After a few years in the Peace Corps, he decided to become a doctor. He graduated medical school and returned to Washington State, where he started working at the tribe's clinic. But being a doctor, the field of medicine, brings up unsettling memories and connotations for some of the Lummi. So this woman came out and she took some pictures, asked some questions of families of suspected children with fetal alcohol, and then left. Uh, Nothing was ever heard of them. She published a study in 1991 based in part on her research at Lummi. She started to build a reputation as an expert in the topic. Lo and behold, in one of her presentations and and workshops, she had a picture of of a kid who had fetal alcohol syndrome. And and the picture comes up and and an, an angry elder stands up and says, that's my grandson. I did not know that this person had fetal alcohol syndrome. Those stories were passed down. I grew up hearing this story. I mean, even, even as a kid, I was like, oh man, that sounds bad. Dakota says some of the Lummi told him that they felt the researcher used the tribe to advance her professional career without any benefit to the community. You know, fast forward to the pandemic, and they, there's still that same level and same skepticism of research because we just are suspicious of other outside researchers coming in almost for professional gain at the expense of the community. There's such a history of extractive research in Indigenous communities, such that research and science are sometimes dirty words. This is Crystal Sosi. Hello, uh, welcome. My name is Crystal Sosi. I just introduced to you in Dinapazad, or Navajo language, my name and all of my clans. I am a citizen member of the Navajo Nation, and also I'm co-founder and ethics and policy director for the Native Biodata Consortium. Like Dakota, Crystal was driven from a young age to serve her tribe. At first, she thought she wanted to study cancer, but then she started to wonder if it was the right fit. If a drug that, you know, I spend my entire life as a scientist investigating even makes it to the marketplace, who is it going to benefit first? And unfortunately, I had the realization that it'd probably benefit people of affluence who had, you know, the best Cadillac health insurance plans. It probably wouldn't trickle down to benefit economically disadvantaged communities like my own. Crystal decided that she needed to pivot. She decided to get a master's in bioethics instead. I actually came back to Arizona State University, which was my alma mater, my undergraduate alma mater, and uh, they were mired in the aftermath of this really seminal lawsuit, the Havasupai tribe versus the Arizona Board of Regents. It's since become one of the most prominent cases of tribal research gone wrong. The case sent shockwaves through research and academic circles, and the outrage came with a demand for restitution. Here's what happened. The Havasupai lived near the Grand Canyon in Arizona. In 1989, a member of the tribe asked a researcher from Arizona State to study if the high rates of diabetes among the tribe were because of their genetics. Which is something that ravaged the community, as many southwestern communities are affected by, by diabetes. Consent forms were signed, and blood samples were collected from the tribe. 
but the research did not find a connection between diabetes and Havasupai genetics. But then the, the community was shocked to realize that their samples were being used to study other things with some stigma attached to it, like, for instance, schizophrenia. There were, the word inbreeding had been used in publications. The Havasupai blood samples were also used in genetic studies that tracked the movement of people over generations. Some results from those studies challenged the tribe's origin narrative. The Havasupai banished all Arizona State University professors and employees from their land after they found out. In 2004, the tribe sued Arizona State for $50 million in damages. The New York Times reported that the Arizona State geneticist says she obtained the right permissions. The lawsuit was settled in 2010, and the samples were returned to the tribe. Cases like the Havasupai are an example of why some tribes don't want to participate in research. But Crystal says for those who do, there's real potential benefit. Knowing more could lead to better care. Just to give you an example of like warfarin dosages, right? Warfarin's a common blood thinning drug. It's prescribed to prevent blood clots, which can reduce the risk of stroke or heart attack. But for many years, we didn't have enough information from indigenous peoples And what we learned a few years ago is that warfarin dosages should be lower for people who are Native American. So we've actually been overdosing these um, individuals and perhaps giving them negative health outcomes. But that's not to say that the answer is to just recruit more Native American peoples. Crystal says one of the assumptions that keeps coming up is that Indigenous people are interchangeable. And just in the U.S. alone, there are over 574-plus federally recognized tribes. 574! That doesn't include the state-recognized tribes or people that have been displaced from outside of the U.S. into the U.S. So there's a huge amount of diversity of Indigenous peoples that people don't understand exists. So Crystal wants to see different kinds of research, not just genetics, but environmental and social factors, too. She says the research must be done in a way that doesn't leave Indigenous people feeling exploited. There are systems set up at research universities that are supposed to do just that. They're called Institutional Review Boards, or IRBs. Here's Dakota Lane again, the executive director of the Lummi Tribal Health Clinic. There's no way, as a clinic... I could rely on the IRBs that are relied upon by academic centers. It just doesn't have that level of trust from the community. But the Lummi Nation has its own review board, a tribal one, run by the Northwest Indian College. And kind of the difference between tribal IRBs and academic IRBs, academic IRBs only look at the patient. They look at the harms done to patients individually. Academic IRBs do a terrible job of looking at the harms done to communities. When the COVID vaccine research team came to Dakota inviting the Lummi to participate, he knew they'd need the blessing of the Tribal Review Board. And so here we are. We just went through this extensive review process, you know, from scientific review from the Northwest Indian College to the community review with our health commission, which is staffed with a lot of our elders, to the ultimate authority of the Tribal Council. And a week later, all this sensational data comes out. (laughs) And so then it was like, oh, crap. When we come back, we'll hear what happened in Dakota's vaccine trial and how it has shaped the Lummi Nation's relationships with outside researchers. That's after the break.
Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca all had vaccines racing to market in the fall of 2020. Dr. Dakota Lane, the Lummi Executive Medical Director, was working with the University of Washington to host a COVID vaccine trial. It was set to start that September. And ultimately, we ended up getting assigned the AstraZeneca vaccine. Dakota worked with colleagues at the University of Washington, the Tribal College's Review Board, AstraZeneca, the Lummi Tribal Council, and another tribe nearby who would also participate, the Nooksack. Finally, the trial was approved. However, I kid you not, the week after we approved it, all of these sensational data came out that was published in the media, particularly around transverse myelitis. Transverse myelitis is a rare neurological condition where the spinal cord becomes inflamed. Dakota says the community was also wary about the safety of the vaccine. A town hall meeting was held over Zoom to answer questions. You know, all these comments would be, how much do they pay counsel for this? I don't want to be guinea pigs. And probably most hurtful or or harmful to me was comments from a few of my um, relatives, you know, nephew, why are you doing this to us? Dakota says poor communication with AstraZeneca complicated matters. He says he reached out to the study leaders and asked for more information. And we were like, what's the actual data on this? Tell us. You know, like, is it one in a million? Is it one in a thousand? You know, what are, we, what are you seeing? And they just, they just were silent. KHN reached out to AstraZeneca. A spokesperson for the company declined to comment. In the end, the Lummi Nation decided to pull out of the trial. No one from the tribe received the AstraZeneca vaccine. Dakota says he was fine with the decision. You know, Lummi's and uh, American Indians were always last to the table. We always last in line to get these fancy new drugs. And, you know, I saw this as bringing this opportunity to the community and giving them a decision. And in this case, they said no, which is just as powerful as saying yes. Dene geneticist Crystal Sosi is working to find other ways tribes can take control of the research process. Tribes should have ownership and stewardship over their own data first, and it should be researchers that should be requesting access to that data, not the other way around. The solution Crystal and a group of other indigenous scientists and leaders came up with is the Native Biodata Consortium. It's controlled by a tribal government and operated on tribal land but the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. It's a nonprofit. There's no bioprospecting or biocommercialization or co-optation of data. The benefits are directly rolled back into the people and the communities. When the biobank opened, Crystal says there was a lot of interest from pharmaceutical companies. And really their questions were, what type of data do you have and what can we get access to? Crystal says the companies wanted access to their data sets to study common diseases in the United States. But the Native Biobank wanted assurances that if the data were coming from Indigenous people, the companies would prioritize Indigenous health needs. And the answer was always the same from pharmaceutical companies. Oh, well, that wouldn't be commercially viable. That wouldn't be profitable. Because the fact that Indigenous peoples in the U.S. constitute 1-3% to of the population, it's not a huge market share. So the Native Biodata Consortium said no to those offers. Instead, Crystal says the biobank only works with researchers who are willing to study the things the tribe wants. It's been something that is great because now we we have community members being active participants in the research process. 
And they're actually able to see not only transparency in the research process and demystifying the whole ordeal, but also, you know, feeling like they have more buy-in into the research product so that they can actually understand that, yes, this is the benefits of the survey we rolled back into the community. The Lummi Nation's experience with the COVID vaccine trials did not end with AstraZeneca. The tribe participated in another trial, this time with a company, Novavax. You know, ultimately, this was a huge success. We ended up enrolling 64 patients. It was quite effective. And so that that was really amazing in my mind. Dakota says transparency and open communication with Novavax made the trials much easier. We received all this information from Novavax. They had nice little media handouts on how it works. We could give it to the community members. We could answer questions, and we can answer them with accuracy and with data. That might sound like a low bar when it comes to expectations for medical researchers, but it made a difference. It's almost like reassuring the community. Do you feel like... This experience with Novavax, a more positive experience, helped repair some of the past wounds with unethical research and show that there's a, quote, right way to do this? Oh, definitely. I can say with 100%, having that as our win, that really cemented the trust that we can do this in a right way. Dakota says the tribe is planning on participating in a long COVID study with the National Institutes of Health and a pilot project to treat methamphetamine addiction without prescription drugs, among others. When you have tribes take control of their destiny, we can do great things. When tribes are in control of their health and research, when they're in control of public policy, we can demonstrate that public health works. This season of American Diagnosis is a co-production of Kaiser Health News and Just Human Productions. Additional support provided by the Burroughs Welcome Fund and Open Society Foundations. This episode of American Diagnosis was produced by Zach Dyer and me. It was engineered by Zach Dyer. Special thanks to Bonnie Duran. Our editorial advisory board includes Jordan Bennett-Begay, Alistair Bitsoy, and Brian Pollard. Tanya English is our managing editor. Una Tempest does original illustrations for each of our episodes. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music from the Blue Dot Sessions. We're powered and distributed by Simplecast. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. Follow Just Human Productions on Twitter and Instagram to learn more about the characters and big ideas you hear on the podcast. And follow Kaiser Health News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Subscribe to our newsletters at khn.org so you never miss what's new and important in American healthcare, health policy, and public health news. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. Thanks for listening to American Diagnosis.